The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Kate Andrews. So Kate, today we had new inflation data out, except it wasn't so new because it was actually the same as the previous months, wasn't it? Tell us more. Yeah, so uh, inflation on the year to September has stuck at 6.7%, the same rise as we saw in August. This month's figures are less pressing than next month's figures because the new off-gem cap will have come in, lowering what the average family will be paying in terms of their energy bills by about £150. So it is expected that in October you will see inflation continue to fall. And Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has been leading on this point that um, inflation rarely comes down in a linear line. Um, you know, we, we saw some fluctuation back at the start of the year when inflation actually rose slightly before it started to come down um, at, at a much faster pace. So the idea that here's a bit of a blip um, is, I don't think, immediately going to panic the government or the Bank of England. But the big question around inflation sticking on the year in September is what this means for the next Monetary Policy Committee meeting when they vote on whether or not they're going to raise rates again. The governor of the bank, Andrew Bailey, made clear last week that these are going to be tight votes. Uh, the last vote we saw to hold rates was voted five to four. So there was clearly disagreement on the committee about what to do with the other four people voting to actually raise rates again by 0.25%. They're going to be looking at a host of things. They'll be looking at this month's inflation data. They'll be looking at expectation for next month. They'll be looking at wages, um, which now in real terms are rising by about 1%. Of course, that follows two years of, of wages falling behind inflation, quite dramatically so sometimes. They'll be looking at what's happening in the Middle East and the conflict and what that's doing to oil prices. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to take in. And I think the difficulty at the moment is that it's, it's really difficult to say where the MPC will fall on this. Market expectation remains that interest rates will rise again at some point before the end of the year to around 5.5%, which would suggest one more interest rate hike. But there are a lot of moving parts here. And I think as we, we've we certainly learned the hard way between the pandemic, Russia's war in Ukraine, and now certainly the conflict in the Middle East, you can have these events that happen outside of your control, completely outside of your control, that you then have to respond to. So, you know, I, I think there, there are a lot of moving parts here that the bank will be watching. I don't think the fact that inflation stuck in September in and of itself means there's going to be another rate rise. Kate, briefly then, does that mean that you're still relatively optimistic that the government will meet its halving inflation target by the end of the year? So if we look at the 6.7% in September, that is still 0.2% below what the Bank of England was predicting in its, in its last forecast. They thought it would be around 6.9% in September. So if price rises continue to slow in October, potentially like to, to a meaningful level, I think that the feeling at the moment is, is that the government can make good on that promise. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about um, how skeptical we are of that promise. It really isn't in the government's control um, to, to set the rate of inflation. It's all those tools sit with the Bank of England. But yes, I mean, at the moment, there's no reason to think that they can't hit it. Let's remember, this may still be on a technicality. They may just hit it. I think there is optimism in government that they will hit it. I think the question, of course, is then, will people feel as though this big thing they kept being told is going to be great for them is actually making a difference? Or will people still feel quite hard up? And I think probably the answer is yes, that people will still feel quite hard up. But it is certainly when you speak to figures in government of the five priorities, I think one where 
there is a sense that they are getting in the right place usual caveats of course and how much is really to do with levers they are pulling and Katie yesterday on a podcast you and Paul Goodman talked about the sustainability of the Labour Party staying together on its position on Israel under the leadership of Keir Starmer and actually today it seems like that fracture is already starting to be quite visible Keir Starmer's had to write a letter to his local councillors after a spate of resignations can you tell us about what's going on there yes this is interesting because I do think it points to what we were talking about yesterday which is I think you can be a bit premature in saying, oh, there's unity from both the parties and even within the parties, people are holding the line because you have the attack on the hospital in Gaza, which you still had the case where the UK government has said it is looking into, you know, who is to blame for that quite early on. Uh, last night, when you started here, uh, you had lots of speculation and accusations against Israel. The Israeli government have now denied this, put out a recording to, uh, to suggest that they believe it actually came from the other side. A question about was it uh, you know, a missile that mislanded and, and went wrong in that sense. But I think already with that, before you even get to the potential ground invasion, you have a situation where it's testing resolve and you have some Labour MPs coming out and making claims um, that then going back on. And then also you have a motion uh, today being put forward, uh, Stephen Flynn from the SNP, the Westminster leader, a key figure in it, as is Richard Bergen in the Labour Party, who I would not say is a bellwether Labour MP. I think Richard Bergen is very much, you know, served in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, often is but of joke amongst, I would say, some of his colleagues. So he's very much on the left, you know, the far left uh, wing of the Labour Party, but he's also involved in this, calling for a ceasefire and saying this is what the UN wants and then try to put pressure on Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer to move their positions. Now, Rishi Sunak will not be moving his position and I don't think Keir Starmer will move his either, but it's certainly the case that Keir Starmer has more voices in his own party who would like to see him take that approach, which is calling for more and more restraint. And the question that we're going to keep hearing is, well, what actually counts as being in line with international law? And I think for now, it is very much, um, you know, these MPs who are probably a bit more Corbynite, those on the left of the party, if you start to see things which can directly be blamed on the Israeli government, so a ground invasion where civilians who did not evacuate therefore um, become affected in casualties, does that start to see mean that you see the massive Labour MPs calling on Keir Starmer, just as those cancers have expressed unhappiness position, rising so it becomes an issue where he starts to look out of step and also and to a degree like he does not have control and I think that's one to watch in the coming days and weeks But Kate, someone who has made up his mind about what exactly happened to the hospital last night is President Biden who today landed in Israel Tell us about that Joe Biden has touched down in Tel Aviv and hosted a joint press conference with Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel. Um, and, uh, you know, Joe Biden has been very clear about where he stands on this issue. But he did go a step further today, saying that from the evidence that he has seen, he believes that the deadly blast at the Gaza hospital was caused by uh, Palestinian militants. His language has been criticized. He suggested it was. I think, quote, the other team that set off those blasts, which have led to casualties. Very strange language, something unfortunately we've had to become used to with Joe Biden, sometimes speaking out of turn or getting a bit confused or using slightly inappropriate language, something that he doesn't always seem to be able to control, not an excuse. Because it seems too casual, like comparing it to a baseball game, or what is the problem with language? Well, I think the problem with the other team is is that we're, of course, talking about human lives here. And yes, exactly, Cindy, the suggestion that this is somehow a, a game 
same, which it so obviously is not. But I think the, the broader point here is just that we have become very used to Joe Biden using language that perhaps isn't always totally appropriate and something that he does seem to struggle to control. I think it's interesting to Katie's point about where the tensions might be, especially within the Labour Party. In the UK, there is essentially unanimous consensus about Ukraine, whether it's the Conservatives or, or the Labour Party that's going to be in power. There seems to be a, they seem broadly united on how they would handle Ukraine, whereas, of course, on the issue of Israel and Palestine, there's a lot more tension in the Labour Party. You can draw some of those distinctions, even if Kiyostam is holding the line. In the US, it's almost the reverse. Yes, you have some Democrats who are very pro-Palestine, and you have some Democrats who take real issue with America's stance towards the cause, but in general, you do see that broad unification of of the political parties when it comes to its support of Israel. It's Ukraine, where there's been a lot more dispute, especially in recent months, the Republicans suggesting that it's just costing far too much money and all the rest of it. But on on this issue of of Israel, even with Joe Biden's um, slightly insensitive remarks there, I don't think there's there's any question about where the U.S. loyalty lies. Mm. And finally, Katie, back home tomorrow, we have not one, but two by-elections, lucky us. Um, Tell us about those by-elections coming up, and because one of the candidates has got into a bit of hot water recently. Yeah, the Tamworth Tory candidate has some old comments for servers about what he would say to families struggling, which I don't think have aged very well, and clearly Labour having a lot of fun with. I think when it comes to the two by-elections, Tamworth sparked by Chris Pincher, and Medvedevshire sparked by Nadine Doris. Eventually, it took her a while. Neither, I think, are really great examples of Tory MPs behaving well and that adds to the pressure but I think it's the the point is will losses be seen as a reflection on Rishi Sunak I think one of the problems of Rishi Sunak is he hasn't had a conference bounce now you don't always get a conference bounce and I think Labour's is fairly small but Rishi Sunak and the Tories are the one that needed a conference bounce if they were going to change the narrative. Um, so I don't think it's a doomsday scenario, but I think certainly the way that some ministers felt as though they couldn't say anything on HS2 and they had to hold a line only for Rishi Sunak to say it. I think it's just fair to say it's not on this rejuvenating effect on the Tory party all the polls. And therefore... If you do have the Tories losing both, which I, I think you're now seeing some ex- expectation management. So there was a, you know, a leaked note yesterday saying the Tories could lose both coming from CCHQ, which Nadine Doris, I think, has come up quickly and said, you know, this is a dossier uh, to try and trick everyone. But all parties do expectation management. But I think there had been a sense in recent weeks that the Tories could perhaps even hold both. And now it certainly feels a bit more pessimistic when you speak to figures involved. And if they lose Tamworth, in a way that probably gives you more of a sense of things. Mm. If they lose Mid-Bedfordshire, that I think will be the worst by-election loss of all time. But <laughs> So that would be bad, to be very clear. But I also think were they to hold it that could give the Tories a false sense of security Mm. because a number of seats, and they would hold it only because the vote really is split between the Lib Dems and Labour. Um, So there's not many seats like that in the country. Um, So I think best case scenario clearly for the Tories is that they hold both I think the more realistic hope at the moment is they somehow scrape it in mid-beds and perhaps they lose Tamworth but they can point to mid-bedfordshire as a way to steady the ship if they do lose both tomorrow I think with what's going on in Israel and Palestine it's not going to be the complete focus of Tory MPs but it will after I think what many see as a conference that failed to do what people had hoped it would do in terms of the polls I think mean more concerns about what's to come on that point about polling post-conference, it's almost as if your big policy being to create 
two tiers of adults, stopping under 14s from ever legally being able to buy cigarettes when they grow up and become adults, wasn't what the country was begging for. Very interesting thought there, Kate. Thanks very much, Kate. Thanks very much, Katie. And thank you very much for listening. If you like this podcast, do rate and review us and tell a friend about it. Thanks.